Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetaries collects and analyzes observations from various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast lives on donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can give as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 a month, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash Observer's Notebook. And if you would like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, you can find us on the internet as well at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we are also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the podcast. And now, this episode with Jerry Hubble. And we discuss exoplanets. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, everybody, back to the Observer's Notebook. Today, we have a special guest, Jerry Hubble, ALPO member, uh, assistant coordinator for the Lunar Section, works for Explorer Scientific and a number of different things. Welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. I, I always uh, enjoy uh, talking to you about uh, the ALPO also. Um, it's, a, it's a passion of mine. Lunar observing has always been a passion of mine. Yeah. Now, why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about yourself, where you're located, that type of thing? Well, so my home is located in Virginia. I'm at the, everybody knows where Fredericksburg is. Mm -hmm. It's a big Civil War uh, area. Big, the center of the Civil War was in Virginia, quite a bit of it anyway. But uh, I'm about 15 miles west of Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is halfway between Richmond and Washington, for those who don't know. Um, and, uh, I've been living here for most of my life. I've built our house here in 1992 on a lake community and, um, I enjoy it very much. Um, and, uh, so I work for Explore Scientific, which is actually located in Arkansas, but I work out of my house, which is really nice. That's nice. So this whole telecommuting thing is not a big deal for you. No, I, there's really no change for me, That's good. you know, in that, in that regard. That's mm -hmm. good. Now, our topic today is exoplanet observing for the amateur. But before we get into that, I just want to dig in a little bit about a little bit more about yourself. All right. Okay. So what, what sparked your initial interest in astronomy? Well, you know, I, 
I was an Apollo kid, just mm-hmm. like a lot of us. And, uh, but I, I think the first time I really started thinking about space was when I was like, um, eight years, seven years old, I think around seven to eight. And it was really started with a telescope. In fact, uh, it was kind of interesting. In class, they had these little three inch, uh, Newtonian reflector telescopes that they'd, they'd loan out. Mm-hmm. And I actually brought one home and started playing with it. We lived in an apartment building at that time. My dad was, was over in Vietnam at the time. Oh my. And, uh, and, uh, but we were in an apartment and we were on the third floor. So I could look out our, our balcony out across, you know, the, the town we were in. And there was a, uh, I just remember distinctly looking at some construction that was going on like a mile away or two miles away up on a hill. And I remember taking that telescope and pointing it out there and looking at the trucks and the, and the dirt movers and everything, just moving stuff around. So that was the first time I messed with a telescope. And then I started uh, at the same time, started looking at the moon. And that's really all mm-hmm. I looked at during that time. I didn't look at anything else. I didn't really know anything else. There's a lot to see in the moon. And that's probably sparked your interest in the moon and why right, you exactly. moved on to what you're doing now at the ALPL. Right. So that was my very first experience with a telescope. Um, now, what was your first telescope? The first one that I had purchased was... Uh, I think I started is right right before I started. Actually, my first job I was a paperboy when I was twelve years old, and uh, when I and then I think I bought my first uh, gym. It was a, a, a Tasco gym mounted uh, refractor. Six, I don't know if it was sixty or seventy millimeter. Okay, I, think I had it was a sixty millimeter. Yeah, I had a Tasco sixty too. And it was a gym mount, and so it was a manual, you know, with the manual theft. And I just. I just love that scope. I think I paid $200 for it out of my own pocket because I was working. I was delivering papers. So that was yeah. the first telescope I bought myself when I was uh, 12 years old, I think it was. Nice. You don't have it anymore. No, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wish I had my first telescope too. Mm-hmm. Now, has someone influenced you in your path through astronomy? Well, I could I can go back to the time when my dad was overseas and I was we were living in Laurel, Maryland, which is very close to Goddard Space Flight Center. That's mm-hmm. where our our apartment was. So oh. my dad was stationed. We were is near Fort Belvoir, and uh, I was born at Fort Belvoir. Actually, I mean I'm sorry, Fort Meade, not Fort Belvoir, Fort Meade in Maryland, which is near Laurel, and. Uh, so we lived in the apartment complex and there's a, there's a guy in the same building that worked at Goddard Space Flight Center. And I got to meet him and uh, he showed me some stuff uh, with electronics that he was working on. And with uh, I just remember, I think he, he told me it was some kind of a telescope thing. Yeah. But it was these digital, it was electronic for, for telescopes is what he told me and what I remember anyway. Um, uh, and he was showing me how he was working on this stuff. And that, that was a, that wasn't the most influential person, but that was really the first piece of influence I had going into, uh, space flight and astronomy and all this stuff, you know, that's cool. And then, and then right after that is when I got into Apollo program and learned everything I could about it. Um, the most, so I'm trying to think who else influenced me. Uh, that was a, that was a, a big in, in initial influence. Uh, I did get to do when I was in college. Uh, one of my electrical engineering professors was um, did a lot of work in the University of Virginia, 
the McCormick Observatory in Fan Mountain. And so I, uh, he taught the astronomy course at the college, and I took it uh, one basic astronomy course, and he took me to the observatory and, and showed me all around, and I started getting into that. Uh, but uh, So that was an influence also. And then I was always interested in electrical engineering and getting into telescope uh, mounts. But uh, in terms of uh, books, I was influenced by uh, initial was this Mark Trueblood and um, um, Russ, uh, Russ Janay. They wrote a book back in the early 1980s, Microcomputer Controlled Telescopes. That was a big influence on me also. Hmm. So that's really carried on through your career. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. what tip, what tips would you give somebody just starting out in astronomy? Uh, first, th- the first tip is to understand that it's a journey and it's not a goal. So your goal might be to take a good picture of this of a deep sky object or the moon, and you have to enjoy getting there. You can't just jump there and expect to be successful. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of the tips. Just enjoy the journey. It's a learning experience. You're investing time in yourself, not, you know, that's the biggest thing is, is when you spend time and money on equipment, you're really investing in yourself and your own personal training on stuff. And that's your very own, true. And your own personal enjoyment of the hobby. So just um, that, was, that was the hardest thing I had when I jumped back into and started learning astrophotography about 12 years ago and getting into the new technology that was available. Um, I, I was somewhat impatient because I thought I knew a lot and I do know a lot, but it wasn't directly relatable. You know, there's a lot to learn. And I, yeah. and I jumped into it with both feet and learned a lot about, it. you know, spent several years teaching myself everything there was to know about it. But so just enjoy the journey. That was the first thing. And then the other thing is, you know, you don't have to, uh, don't invest in a lot of equipment up front. <laughs> Again, it's, you don't want to, get to the end point before you even know anything you need to um, step, go through the process and learn the sky. Uh, you know, some people want to learn it more than others. I can understand that you want to be able to get to the goal, but give yourself some time and use buy a pair of binoculars is what okay. I would suggest instead of buying a telescope and learn the sky. That's good, um, that's good advice. Good advice. Yeah, I'll oh, go on. Mm-hmm. Go on. Uh, the uh, the third thing I think is that if once you start to decide you get into astrophotography and you're really starting to enjoy it, you're taking some pictures through your with your cell phone through the telescope, and you're really getting excited about it. Um, realize that there's a lot of stuff to learn, and and you may assume some things that aren't true, and you think it's that way, but it's not. So um, just understand that. Uh, there's a different approaches to everything, but again, there's only some things that work and some things that don't. So you need to really, uh, listen, uh, and learn, uh, from those that are out there that are willing to help you. That's true. I, That's true. I did it by myself, a lot of it. Uh, so I went down some paths that weren't right. You know, I, I did buy some books and things, but so I taught myself the vast majority of it, but I, I didn't get into, uh, I didn't join a, uh, an astronomy club until late i was a loner for for decades oh really and not until about 10 years ago did i join an astronomy club and started interacting with others 
<laughs> yeah, there's so, quite there's quite a value to joining a club yeah, of like minded exactly. people. Exactly. So that's the third tip is to to get with people and join a club and 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 work together on stuff. Having a project to work together on is the fastest way to learn anything. True. So true. Yeah, astronomy is such an interesting hobby because there's so many different avenues you can go down and interest you can you can just be interested in comets you know we have someone right. a, a section in the ALPL ju- that's meteorites you know if that's you just right. want to mm-hmm. and be interested in i mean that's anything in the universe is open game for you if if you're interested in astronomy and i i think back 5 5 10 years ago there was no field of exoplanets. <laughs> no, <laughs> really. exactly. Right. Especially in the amateur world. And you recently had an article, congratulations, published in Astronomy Thank Magazine mm-hmm. about uh, observing exoplanets as an amateur. Yep. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about, first off, what is an exoplanet? An exoplanet is, is no different than a planet here in the solar system, um, except it's on a, out around a star that's... Uh, a different star, basically. Okay, so it's, it's a star. The sun is a star. The sun is a star. Right. Like any other star you see in the sky, it's just that we're we're in this local system with our star. And uh, so it's no different than any other planet, except the planets, there's a wide diversity of planets, and it's a lot different when we're looking out and discovering these other exoplanets, how different they really are. So, for example, the first exoplanets that were discovered was were Jupiter size or larger, a little mm-hmm. larger than Jupiter, but they were they were closer to their star than Mercury is, which is crazy, wow. and they only take a few days to go around the planet, so they're whipping around their star, which is really an odd thing because we're used to what we have for planets. You know, you have the rocky ones that are close to the close to the star, and then you have the gaseous planets that are outside, further out. Um, and the theory at that point was that you know the gases got blown off close to the star and then out further out they retain their gaseous atmospheres so that's just something that's totally different that we discovered early on with an exoplanet yeah now nasa has a program called tess uh Mm -hmm. transiting exoplanet survey satellite and it's an all-sky survey that's checking out stars and looking for exoplanets Mm -hmm. and uh so that's the professional side of it what got you interested in this field? So I was always interested in doing science with my, my telescope. Mm-hmm. And I got into it once the technology and the, and the instruments that became available to do effective science back the last 10 years. Uh, my first thing was to get into minor planets and be able to track in asteroids and, uh, and calculate their orbits and do things like that. And then I discovered photometry and doing light curves for uh, minor planets, which is Mm -hmm. cool because you can calculate their rotation rate. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world when I first learned that, that you could actually determine how fast an asteroid is rotating based on its light curve. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just a little dot of light. How, what can you really know about a dot of light? And there's a lot, there's a lot. And and there really isn't that much variation in the brightness of a minor planet either. Well, it's, 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 it depends. There is quite, there's more than you expect. Cause I, okay. I was, I was actually, I, I did one a couple of years ago. It's a fairly large, uh, it was a, I think it was, uh, asteroid Fortuna. It was number 19, I think it is. But, um, 
I, I, I did a light curve on it, expecting it to be small, like you said, but it was, it, it varied over a few hour. Like I did a portion of the rotation rate and it varied by like 0.2 magnitude. Oh my. Which is quite a bit. Yeah. And even, and that's a, that's a fairly large asteroid. And I said, well, golly, I didn't realize they would change that much. And, uh, so that was a new, new thing I learned two or three years ago. But yeah, so for example, the light curves you can with asteroids you can determine their shape because you know as the as the asteroid goes around the the sun, it presents different aspects to it to us observing from Earth, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at one side, you do a rotation rate on one side, looking at the asteroid tonight, and then three months from now you'll look at it and it's from a different, completely different angle. And they'll do a rotation rate, and then you'll see a different curve for the light curve. Okay, and uh, my dogs are going nuts. So they, so the light curve is different when you look at the asteroid from one angle from another. So what they do, what you do, is you take different light curves over time, and we look at all different sides of the asteroid, and then you can determine what the actual shape of the asteroid is. There's a 3D modeling tool to do the shape of the asteroid. So that's the kind of work you can do okay. with light curves. So I start, you know, and then pe people have been talking about uh, exoplanet work and about and six or eight years ago, I found this guy's book. His name's Bruce Gary. He's a pioneer and amateur exoplanet observation. He wrote a book that's freely available online. I don't know if you've seen that book. No, I have not. Uh, so if you look up Bruce Gary, uh, exoplanet you'll find his website okay he talks about the work he did early on this was 10 years ago that he did this work oh wow he wrote a book and that's so that's how i got into exoplanets i found that book and started and read it and and followed it and then i, I did some initial work and then i i'm a member of the aavso okay so i uh dennis conti they started offering a class three or four years ago, three years ago, I think I took this class on exoplanet observing with Dennis Conti. So I took that class three years ago and then that's how I started actually doing exoplanet work. Huh. So going from minor planet magnitude rotations and things like that. And it's, right. it's all Light photometry. Curves. So it's all basic right, photometry. photometry. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then uh, most recently, about a year ago, um, I joined the tests, uh, follow-up working group, uh, which is a ground-based portion of the test mission, uh, the NASA test mission. They've got a follow-up working group, which is a pro-am coordination of observations to validate the test test mission objects of interest. They, the test, so the test mission is kind of like a finder scope for the, for the um, James Webb telescope is what it comes down to. Oh, all right. That's really the one of the big purposes of the test mission is to is to identify uh, candidates, and so one of the things we do from the ground is to validate the candidates because the instrumentation is just good for detection; it's not good for measurement at all. So you need to validate the uh, the detection or the uh, the discovery of the exoplanet from the ground, and amateurs and pros together work on that project, and I'm I'm part of that team. Now, how large is the amateur contingent that's working on that? In the tests? Yeah. Uh, so early on, it started out when I joined a year ago um, in terms of the 
direct working with test, there's uh, probably about 15 okay. amateurs working on it, 10 to 15. Dennis Conti started that team, uh, and he's the AAVSO coordinator for the Exoplanet Observatory. But it's grown since then. There's uh, there's several groups that I'm I'm involved with. Also, the JPL uh, has started a citizen science group to right. do exoplanet work. Uh, Rob Robert Zellum is the uh, doctor that's involved with that, and hmm. that's the uh, exo, what's it called Exoplanet Watch JPL group. Huh. And then uh, there's other teams that are starting to form this past year uh, to do follow up work on exoplanets. So there's two phases the follow-up work one is the validation of the actual test data it's an initial observation from the ground to determine yes that's an exoplanet no it's a false positive it's really a star that's got sunspots or it's something else it's a rotating binary and then the other part is to validate the ephemerides that's a long-term follow-up program is where you go back and you observe and make sure that you've got the correct uh, ephemeris calculations for the rotation or for the orbit of the planet because you want to be can be able to continue to find it and find the transit and so you need an accurate uh, measurement of the transit time you know what time of day or what i guess what what the rotation or the the orbital period is you that's what you're determining an exact value for the orbital period so you don't lose it so if there's a little bit of drift or there's a bad number in the orbital period, it'll eventually go away on you when you expect it to show up. You won't you won't see it anymore. And then you got to say, well, when is it going to happen now? So that's why you need follow up. Uh, that's why you need follow up observations continuously. That's the same thing with asteroids uh, and minor planets. You know, most of those have very well defined uh, orbits, but some of them that amateurs do follow up work on help to maintain the uh, orbital uh, parameters on the asteroids because they, they get influenced by the planets and by other asteroids. So they'll drift out, but you need to keep up with them so that you can maintain their orbit uh, calculations. They change. All right. Now you're, you're, you're physically not seeing the exoplanet, but you're seeing changes in the star's brightness. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, as a a planet goes around the, the individual star. Right, exactly. There's certain assumptions about the curve that you do. Um, I don't know if you've seen, uh, well, you, you saw the article, right? It shows right. an example of light curve. Uh, so there's a certain parameters with the light curve that tell you a couple of things, which, which if you can do it accurately enough, which is what the article was about, you can measure the actual planetary parameters. And one of them is the size of the planet based on the depth of the transit, right? So it's just like, it's just identical to a Venus transit or mercury transit okay okay it's identical to that so you can determine based on how much light dims uh a jupiter-sized planet causes a one percent change in the light okay um an earth-sized planet is is probably 20 times less than that so it's very difficult to detect a earth-sized planet with a transit uh but from the depth of the measurement um, you can determine the size of the planet in terms of the diameter. Uh, the other thing you can determine is its inclination. So you, you see when the when the planet transits and it goes, starts to enter, does the ingress, just like uh, Venus when it does the ingress, 
into right. the sun and then it does the egress. The time it takes to do that is the slope. So the light's going from full brightness in the sun and then it's dimming a tiny bit as the planet ingresses and egresses. That slope of that line is what determines the inclination of the planet's orbit to your line of sight. Okay. Okay. So that's another thing, orbital parameter you can determine is the inclination of the orbit. And from that, you can determine the orbital, uh, the, the length of the transit helps you determine the, the size of the orbit. So those things you can model and determine just from looking at the light curve. Interesting. Now, what type of equipment I mean, do you suggest using? Now, you use, uh, I believe it's the Mark Slater Remote Observatory? Right, exactly. That's an observatory that we built uh, oh, four years ago, um, and we've changed it out some. But uh, that's, there's a main instrument we have there is a six-and-a-half-inch refractor. Okay. And that's the uh-huh. instrument you use for this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So not overly? No. So most, you know, if you're going to use a refractors, I've found that are, are a little bit better and the details are um, very, maybe not tedious, but they're a little bit details. There's details in why that would be compared to a Smith cast grain or a, any other kind of cast grain instrument that has a central obstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that also talks about the the other instrument that I'm going to be telling you about here in a, in a few minutes, a diffuser. But uh, in terms of uh, refractor, uh, or or reflector cassa grain. You know most amateurs have an eight inch. If you have an eight inch Smith cassa grain, you can very easily do this type of work. Huh. That's wild. I because of was... because the techniques and the cameras and the systems are have been developed over the years to tell you exactly what you need to do. Interesting. Now, is there set software that you're using as well, or there's freely available software. The standard. Uh, for the test measurements is called is a is a program called Astro Image J, and it was developed uh, by Karen Collins, uh, along with her colleagues at uh, I can't remember what university she's at, but they developed this software to do light curve analysis, and uh, so it's called Astro Image J. It's a toolkit that's added on to a program that's also called that's just called Image J. Uh, that's freely available. And, hmm. uh, so, so you could put that in the notes. Um, okay. I will do that. Definitely. Now there's that's another- free software to, to do the light curve analysis and also do the Astro image. does the modeling for exoplanets too. So that's a very powerful. Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you use to capture the data? So we use standard astrophotography, uh, instruments, uh, a, a CCD camera. Uh, you want to use a fairly good quality one that's got thermoelectrically cooled uh, camera. You can do some of this work with digital SLRs, but it just makes the measurement tougher, and you may not be quite as um, precise in the measurement because of the noise. That's okay. the biggest thing. You have that's the biggest problem is noise. So you have to do everything you can to knock the noise down for the measurement. Okay. That includes that includes calibration frames, includes um, the techniques that we use when we do the measurement and differential. So it's called differential um, photometry, aperture photometry, is the method. And I exp- I talk about that in the uh, article in astronomy. 
Right, right, right. And there's another observatory involved with this as well? Yeah, so when I did this study uh, that I talk about in the article, uh, I worked with Dennis Conti. Uh, I got him involved with it to, to analyze. So the the work I started on about, it was about almost two years ago now. Uh, I discovered a paper written by this group at the University of Pennsylvania, and they developed this new filter type of instrument. It's called a diffuser, and it's basically what it does is designed to spread the light out of a star a very specific way so that you can accurately measure small, tiny brightness changes in the light. Um, I don't want to get into too much detail, but the article talks about it, and and I've got a link. I don't know if you want to link my paper that talks into great detail on yeah. how it works also. I'm, I'm adding uh, a link to your paper. Mm-hmm. So it gets into why this instrument works as well as it does and how it mitigates a lot of the noise sources that we deal with in as terms of in, in amateur world, which scintillation is the biggest thing in the sky moving around. Right. But there's also a thing where you have to gather enough photons to get the statistical measurement uh, precise enough to do this, to see the light curve. So, and that's in terms of shot noise. Uh, do you, uh, whenever you do a, a measurement of light and you collect photons, it's a statistical thing uh, where uh, the more photons you collect, the more precise the number is that you can mm-hmm. know it is. So the error in the light me- measurement goes down as you collect more and more photons. So, and it's, and it's an inter- and the relationship is that the signal to noise ratio of the measurement or the precision of the measurement in terms of that and shot noise is equal to the square root of the total number of photons that you collect. Okay. So if you, if you, the basic premise of the diffuser is that it spreads the light out across more, more pixels, which gives you more sensors to measure the light without overexposing any one pixel. That's the whole key is to accumulate millions of, of photons where any one pixel might only be able to collect, let's say 10,000 or 15,000 photons on any one pixel. But you want to get a signal to noise ratio so high where you collect millions of photons. That means you have to spread the light out. So that's the whole basis for the measure for the instrument. Okay. It kind of sounds similar to when I do magnitude estimates of comets, I defocus the stars to make the stars that make the stars larger. So their, their size is equal to that of the comet and it's easier to estimate the magnitude. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Now, uh, do you, how do you go about making your observations? Is it something you do periodically through an evening or through a period of days? How do you do that? So the, uh, so the measurement, the, the transit varies between typically most transits are like um, three to four hours long. Oh, okay. So you want to get, so you want to get uh, an hour if you can get it or half an hour before the transit, so you get a baseline and then in a half an hour to an hour, best, best to get an hour after the transit is over. Uh, so the session can run anywhere from, you know, five to six hours basically. And it's, or so it's even using, seven hours. You're using a remote observatory, so I assume everything's automated. 
Well, it's semi-automated. Our, our observatory, the MSRO, is set up as a teaching observatory. We don't fully automate it. Uh, it's a hands-on okay. training facility. So, But you can get, once you get it set up on the target, you can start a imaging run and, and it'll, it's automated after that. It continues to okay. take data for several hours and you just sit there and monitor it every once in a while to make sure it still looks good. There is some uh, certain requirements uh, in terms of tracking ability and then, uh, you know, uh, how good the sky is right. uh, to be able to get good data. Okay. So there must be some pretty high precision photometry techniques you use. Yeah. So that's the, one of the key ones is this uh, diffuser instrument that I talk about in mm-hmm. the paper, in the article. What we found is that in the, the paper that we, we wrote last year um, compares the diffuser method with this new instrument to the defocus method, which is what you were just talking okay. about. So you can defocus a star and uh, get it, you know, get the pixel spread out so that you can collect more, more photons, which is what you want. But you still have to deal with this little bugaboo called scintillation. Right. All right. And what the and the and what I found on a refractor based system is that the scintillation uh, from defocus compared compared to the diffuser is a lot worse. So mm. even though you defocus the star, the the light will still move around. Okay. It jumps around, uh, regardless if it's a tight you know, when it's a tight focus it just the brightness varies. But when you spread it out, then you start to see where it varies at, right? It okay. moves around. The Got sky, it. you can really see the sky move around. The diffuser mitigates that because what it does is it actually, each little element in the diffuser takes a piece of that light and spreads it out across the whole profile. So you're averaging all that scatter, all that movement over that whole profile, and it's th- it turns out to be solid as a rock. There's mm. no variation. In that, in that image of the star that you're taking in terms of scintillation. It doesn't move around. It doesn't jump around. Now, is the diffuser, um, is it hardware or software? It's hardware. Okay. It looks just like a filter. Okay. There's a picture of it in the article. Right. Um, and so there's a company called RPC Photonics that makes this, um, this diffuser. It's called an engineered diffuser, RPC Photonics. And they sell two two types. They sell uh, a one-inch round uh, diffuser, and then they have a two-inch square diffuser. And the diffuser is characterized by its diffuse the divergence angle. So basically, what it does is it takes a uh, think, think of a point source of light coming into the diffuser, and it spreads it out at a certain angle. So as you move. So the distance between the diffuser and the image plane is how you control the size of that. Uh, it looks like a blurry star. It looks like a blob. But ha- depending on how close the um, diffuser is to the image plane, it it's changes the size of that blob. Okay. okay. Interesting. And and so once once you size that, once you ca- you can buy that diffuser in a one inch and and they don't sell it mounted in a cell. I had to cannibalize another filter wheel or filter to uh, 
take that out and put this uh, diffuser into the cell and put it into our filter wheel. Okay. So the targets you select, are these all targets from tests? Yeah. So okay. what we've concentrated on, they're called uh, test uh, objects of interest, POIs. Okay. And if you search the internet, you'll, you'll see that term come up. Uh, so what they've done, the test has identified these possible exoplanet stars and they they're listed in this toi database and they do each the they're they're coming up on finishing this the northern hemisphere um they've scanned they do so they every 28 days they do a sector in the sky and then they've the first year they they did the southern hemisphere sectors and then northern hemisphere they're just getting ready to finish up this summer the northern hemisphere sectors. So every month they come out with a list of tar TOIs for those sectors that they just completed. And then they tell the people that are on the follow-up team, these are all the targets, go out and look at them and see what you can see. These are the estimated, uh, they give us fairly good times for the, for the transit time, the center of the transit oh. time based on the data from tests. But then that, that's all. And then they give an estimate for the depth of the thing. Uh, but then we had to follow up to make sure it's a real uh, exoplanet or if it's some false positive. And it's, it's all based on the measurement of the actual light curve and the shape of it. So there's certain shapes of light curves that it, it would show up different if it's a binary star as opposed to an exoplanet. Okay. So you're basically doing the confirmation of what tests to see in. Yeah, that's the first. Uh, that's the first uh, level of observation that the test follow-up group is, uh, is doing, um, and it's it's. Um, what do I want to say? Uh, that that that's what we do. We we do a follow-up, and we it's a screening process, is what I'm wanting to say. Okay. So you screen out what's real and what's not, and it goes through several two or three iterations. There's the, the test follow-up working group has several different subsections. I'm, I'm a member of the uh, seeing limited uh, group, which means that the observations we do from the ground have to be seeing limited in terms of the precision. You don't, you, that's, that's part of the deal with uh, getting as many photons as you can so you get shot noise error out of the way completely. You You're get, looking you for a minimize perfect the, Right. You basically get rid of that shot noise, and now all you have left is a, is the seeing and, and the seeing. And I talk about this a little bit in the article in mm -hmm. my paper too, is how I've uh, talked about the different types of scintillation. One's a long-term, one's a short-term scintillation. But again, once you get the shot noise out of the way and you're seeing limited, you're, you can do quite an accurate measurement because also you're doing other things with the analysis and uh, some math statistical measurements right. to do, to get the, precision pretty high and i'm talking about a precision down less than three millimag or three thousandths of a magnitude wow uh where typically you know standard photometry is done it's been this way for decades where one percent uh precision was considered very mm -hmm. good to excellent typically for amateurs that's amazing now how many targets are you currently observing so we we've got a there's a tool that they provide us which is a um, it's a search tool for what's available in our sky that night it's just like any other tool okay what what exo what exoplanets are available which ones need to be observed typically they're the ones that came out this month 
So you have to go through that school, that, that tool, and they, you know, our, our observatory is listed in there to select to screen for our, our location. We've got a local horizon that we have to deal with when we're identifying these targets. It'll tell us whether it would be a full transit, whether we can cover the full transit in our sky or whether it's a partial because it could be, you know, started before it rose above our horizon and then we could continue after that or if it's a if it's setting during the transit so we got to deal with that so we go through and typically there's um uh, you look 7 days ahead and there's there may be two or three that are available but again we got to then then since we're a backyard observatory we're not on top of a mountain we have to deal with the weather right system. so we we get to view uh maybe two or three a month uh, okay that must be pre- that must be pretty cool to to confirm something like that though too. Well, we've been lucky. So a lot of the, a lot, believe it or not, I'm surprised some of these targets that Tess identifies. I would say thirty percent to fifty percent, I guess, are not real are not real exoplanets. Oh wow! So, but it's good to find them because then now you find these little binary stars that you mm-hmm. didn't know were binary and you can find other things that are going on. Interesting. Wow. So, so it's very rare to, to really do the initial ground observation of a new test object that's never been observed before. And we, we were able to do a couple of those, which is cool. That is. So it's almost like we did the confirmation of the discovery, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's, you know, then once you nail down the light curve and it goes to these other subgroups, then, um, then it goes to the long-term follow-up mission, which is determining, tracking the, uh, you know, the planet's orbit, orbital uh, time, and keeping keeping up with the uh, with the ephemeris of the of the planet. Yeah, and these will be targets, like you said, for the Webb telescope when it gets in orbit. Someday. Yes, that's right. That's the follow-up, right? Exactly. And and they're they're actually, you know, we we've run the the. Planets I've seen are um, or Jupiter are a little bit less than Jupiter size. So, for example, uh, we've done exoplanets that are around eight millimag in depth. The one that we, the smallest one we've seen, which was really a challenge, was uh, around uh, three to four millimag in depth in terms of the transit wow. depth. But the precision has to be around one to two millimag to be able to see that that's crazy so it is it's (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of work i mean the analysis takes a while so the first first time i went through and we did our real observations of the test objects i spent probably days doing the analysis to make sure and doing the modeling because you really got to play with the with the slope of the curve and the data you got to make sure you've done it right to to get the noise knocked down and all this stuff you have to do to to get it, uh, to get the precision you need to do this accurate measurement with the modeling. Yeah, well, that's why they pay you the big bucks to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get I get paid in, uh, in personal discovery and enjoyment. There you go. Hey, yeah. that's pretty good. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Now, if that's someone a, were to undertake this type of endeavor, what what should they consider? Um, what should they consider in terms yeah. of? If so, yeah, if someone came to you and said, hey, I want to start doing this as well. Okay. I want to look for exoplanets. 
Mm-hmm. What 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 do you recommend? So what do, so to start this, uh, you should get online and read, get some basic information about what exoplanets are, and and how uh, what a transit is and what it really means in terms of uh, what the transit uh, the light curve data means and and a transit, and then and then you can go to the test website. And they've got tools to tell you, talk to you. There's other exoplanet websites too. But if you want to see or play with some data before you start actually doing your own observations, which is what I would suggest, is to start looking at Astro Image J. Now, I'm assuming that you've already got some experience doing astrophotography. If you don't, if you're trying to start out doing exoplanets as a beginner, as a visual observer, then you would need to learn, uh, take some time to learn about astrophotography in general and scientific astrophotography in, in particular. And, and I just happen to have written a book about that, uh, which you're aware of, I'm mm-hmm. sure. And uh, so you want to do get into what it takes to do scientific astrophotography and imaging and doing measurements from, from astroimages. So once you've learned that and how to do calibrations and how to do that processing, uh, I would suggest you start out doing light curves for double for double stars or for um, uh, binary star systems. Doing some light curves that have fairly large magnitude changes, you can do, and then you move on to maybe minor planet light curves, kind of like what I did when I first okay. started learning path. it. You really have to get your feet wet with easy targets before you can start anything with exoplanets learn how to crunch the numbers right learn how to crunch the numbers at a certain level and then you don't necessarily have to use astro image j to start learning how to do light curves you can you can use other programs uh, because astro image j has got a learning curve to itself Uh, but you can do light curve photometry learn that with uh with with binary stars and with uh with minor planets. And then once you're comfortable with that, then you can start learning the particulars of exoplanets. And I would suggest Bruce Gary's book as a great primer on doing that. All right. What Mm -hmm. have you learned along the way? What have I learned? Uh, So in terms of amateur astronomers, this is a big key thing for me. I've learned that, you know, amateurs can do, a lot of stuff that, that professionals do and actually have more opportunity to do right. that more than what professionals have the opportunity to do. Um, and you actually learn a lot being hands-on with the instruments and with the analysis and with everything else. Um, I've learned that uh, you can you can push this equipment pretty hard and really surprise yourself on how well uh, the instruments do. And it's just a matter of technique and skill. It's not, it's not magic. It's not like, uh, you know, when you have, when you do pretty picture astrophotography, there's a lot of individual skill and technique to making the beautiful images. Right. Right. It's not really that way with scientific imaging. You don't want it to be that way. You want a consistent, really high precision, uh, way of doing things that, that you can almost cookbook. But you can train to a cookbook and then learn about it along the way. Okay. Um, 
and it's just a technique and a skill that you practice and you learn. And then once you get uh, the tools under your belt, then you can just do it. Hmm. Okay. So what do you think the future is for you in this? I mean, test objects, they're going to be out there for a while working it. Yeah. There's going to be follow-up work done for decades. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. where do you want to take it? Uh, Well, for right now, I just like to share the experience and, and make, and, and help people understand that, yes, you can do this. Um, it's just, it takes some effort. I mean, and some understanding, but it's very doable from your backyard. I mean, there's certain things you have to do, certain things you have to, um, forget about. You might have some notions that you think are valid, but then you find out, well, that doesn't make any sense in terms of this. I don't need to do that. For example, um, you know, the standard and typically this is, this is a good thought is that you need excellent seeing and you need good transparency mm-hmm. right, to do astrophotography. Right. That's not the way it is with scientific imaging. We're blobbing the star out on purpose to measure it. We're measuring the light. We're not making a pretty picture. Right? There you go. So, yeah. so you don't have to worry about seeing so much except for, um, when you get down to the really the highly precise stuff. Uh, but in the transparency, I, I actually did in the paper I wrote, I demonstrated that you could do these high precision measurements, even with a near a full moon. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, wow. So this is open to anybody that has the time and energy. That's right. to- so really it's a more, it, it, there's more time or there's more opportunities to do these observations that you would, than you would think based on the sky conditions being, you know, they look clear the sky, you can see stars, but maybe it's not quite as, uh, transparent or crystal clear as you'd like to see it, or it's not quite as steady. But again, there's, there's tools to mitigate those issues. And the diffuser is a big one in that regard. Okay. All right. That sounds cool. Now, what about possibly making it a a section for the ALPO, Exoplanet? Oh, yeah. So I floated that idea to you. I've talked to, uh, a year ago, I talked to Mike Reynolds about it. He passed away recently, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. But uh, he thought it was a good idea. And I I was going to bring it up to uh, uh, I can't remember who it is now. Uh, But you... You, you're on the board now, right? I'm on the board now, yeah. So now I can use you as a go-between, <laughs> yeah, uh, to to push this, not to push it, but I'd like I I really you know we're we're the association of lunar and planetary observers. It doesn't say exoplanets or solar system planets. It just says planet. I, I I hear you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, and we do have a section already that's the. Uh, uh, What's it called? Outer planets or the... Um, oh, we have a minor planet section that's focused. We have a minor planet section, but we also have the remote planet section. That's true. Right? This could Which is Uranus be- and, and Neptune. Yeah. So these are really remote planets. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I don't... But I'd, I'd, I'm not sure it would really be fair to the remote planet section to try to glob on exoplanets no. into their group because they're really special. Yeah, they've got a long history with the solar system objects. I would not, I would not dare. Yeah, it would probably make its own section, but that's up. Yeah, before. I would make a own section for exoplanets. I would yeah. not try to abscond yeah. with the remote planet section. Yeah, interesting, man. So, mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to share or talk about the, your paper or? 
before we uh, this up. So recently, there's a couple things coming up. I'm going to be giving a small presentation, a short one, at the uh, in, in about a, three weeks at the American Astronomical Society. They're having their virtual uh, uh, seminars or their search virtual con- conference uh, starting June 1st through June 3rd. And I was asked to present my paper there. It's just nice. a small poster paper with the five, I think a five minute presentation or something uh-huh. like that, just an outline uh, at the level, probably at the level of the article that I wrote for astronomy magazine. Okay. I may show some other details dip into the weeds a little bit, but nothing, you know, nothing big. Um, so I've got that coming up and then, um, NEF is coming up. Hopefully we'll be able to have it in September. Yeah. And uh, the imaging conference um, is going to be going on there. And Explore Scientific will be there to show our equipment. And I'll be there at our booth giving talks uh, also. Nice. Any any new equipment coming out from Explore that you could talk about? We're working on stuff. We're, we're busy working. We're, we're actually, I can, I can tell you we've, we've started on a, a new development, product development cycle. We're going to have a lot of exciting new stuff coming out in the next uh by the end of the year, we'll have some things. And then going forward next year, we'll have uh, a few more things. But uh, <laughs> it's a brand. It's. Let me see how I can put this. We're going to be, I, I think you can think that we can, we're, we're starting down a path to revamp all of our equipment. Really? Yeah. Revamp. And, to add new, and to add new stuff. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I love my six-inch Matsudov I've got from you guys. Oh, so great. I, so mm-hmm. I had it out about two weeks ago up in the desert. It was real, nice. really nice. And the PMC-8 worked great. <laughs> yeah, how, how do you like that? I I really appreciate that. That's my baby, you know. Yeah, so. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you I think you were the first person who told me about it. I said, that sounds interesting. I mm-hmm. think I'll give it a shot. And I like it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I had bugs with it when I got it. But yeah, it's, that's it's, it's a learning curve to it. It's different it is. than other controllers. and. Uh, it is, yeah. But I like being able to sit there with my iPad and control it at night. And, nice. Know, and it repeats really well, so I like it. Cool. I Product it. endorsement, yeah. <laughs> cool. So anything else, Jerry? And just I want to just I, – I have two books. Just uh, if you okay. want to get, put a link in it for those. My, my first book was Scientific Astrophotography, published by Springer in 2012. That's a good primer on getting into uh, – the equipment that you would need to do exoplanet observing. Okay. Um, now, Available on Amazon. A- Amazon, right? Yeah. Exactly. And uh, the prices have come down on the equipment compared to when I wrote that book, you know, in 2012. So it's very, very easy to do this work now with uh, with the stuff that's available today. It's not as expensive as it used to be. The other one I wrote uh, was a couple of co-authors. Um, Linda Ballard and uh, Rich Williams is called uh, uh, Remote Observatories for Amateur Astronomers. Mm-hmm. So that gets into the, that's the next part of the, the chapter to turn your astroimaging system, which is what I call it in the first book, into a fully remotely operated controlled observatory. And uh, we talk about building your own in there and we talk about uh, commercial services, how you can use commercial services. And then there's a great third part of the book that talks about all the different projects that amateurs and astronomers are doing, example projects 
in photometry and astrometry and, and beautiful pictures, all the different uh, projects you can do with these systems remotely. Great. I'll add links to both those books in the uh, show notes. I appreciate that. Thanks. Sure. Well, Jared, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you again. Yeah, that's good. Is this, um, I think uh, it's done well. We've, we've gone on for what, almost an hour now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. All right, man. Well, you take care. You too. Thank you. All right. Stay healthy. <laughs> right, bye-bye. Bye. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank Jerry Hubble coming on today and giving us an interesting talk about uh, observing exoplanets, something amateurs can do with their own equipment. Very interesting talk. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate that. You can also listen to us on, I- on iHeartRadio. Apple Radio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and that little box that listens to every word you say in your house, the Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month, where you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their generous support of the Observer's Notebook. Thank you very much. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at ObserversNBPod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening and stay healthy. <laughs>